In our last conversation on faith and technology and how they intertwine, how much we can be in the world but not of the world, we talked about conflict and the role that technology can play in it and helping or hindering and, and what the relationship is there. It's a pretty heavy topic, so let's start off this conversation on a much lighter note with a really simple, maybe silly question, maybe a question you'd talk about with your kids. But sometimes the simple things are profound. So let's ask the question. Let's get our wheels turning as we head into this conversation today. The question is this. Are you more like a tree or a truck? As a human being, you know, myself, yourself, all of us, are we humans more like trees or more like trucks? What do you think? Are we more like trees because we grow? You know, trees grow, they start off small and then they grow. Or are we more like trucks because we've got purpose? Are we more like trees because we can bear fruit? Or maybe are we more like trucks because we can do work? Trees, you know, can put down roots and grow deep into the soil, but uh, trucks can co um, cover a lot of distance. They can, they can go places. Trees are rooted. You know, there's lots of different types of trees, taller, shorter, seasonal, um, ones that bear fruit, ones that just have flowers. There's lots of different types of trucks. Why am I asking this question? Why are we challenging ourselves to start this conversation in this way? Because at the very root of that question, regardless of which one you identify with more or less, is a fundamental definition of what it means to be a human. How you see yourself more as biology or more as technology. Do we see ourselves more as like an organic thing or more as like a functional thing? Now, if you take it even a step deeper, the Bible teaches us that we become what we look upon. This is one of the great critical areas of warning that God gave to the people of Israel when they were surrounded by all these idol-worshiping peoples. They said, these people, and even you, Israel, when you get sucked into this mentality of the world around you, they look upon their idols so much that they become like their idols. Their idols can't see, they can't hear, and so they become people who can neither see nor hear. The idols are stone and wood, hardened and unfeeling, and the people become that way as well. We really do become what we look upon. The things that we idolize start to influence us. The people that we idolize start to influence us. The music that we like starts to influence us. All these things, we're very permeable. And so we reflect the things that we look upon, the things that we spend our time gazing at thinking about start to shape who and what we are. You know, on the flip side, in the best possible way, we're supposed to reflect God. And the more we look upon the face of Christ and see God the Father, 
the more we begin to look like him. And this happens through fellowship, this happens through worship, this happens through prayer, this happens through scripture study, happens through the working of the Spirit. There's so many ways, but when we look upon God, we begin to look more like God. And so my question, trees versus trucks, really is an important one because we're in a technology-driven society most of the things that we gaze upon every day are technology. And my assertion in this conversation, the thing I'd like you to consider is that it might not be such a good thing for us to be gazing at so much technology because the end result of being surrounded by that is we might begin to see ourselves in light of it. We may begin to identify ourselves as mechanisms rather than organisms. It's kind of an unintended consequence of living in a technology-driven society rather than an agricultural-based society. You know, an agricultural-based society sees themselves in how the fields grow and the seasons, and, but if we find ourselves in this technology-centric world, we begin to see ourselves in terms of parts, pieces, cogs in the wheel, um, functional mechanical objects. And that's what I want to unpack in our conversation today. Humans are not technology. Humans are biology. That's just a fundamental truth. We, we, we don't need to debate that, but let's be reminded of it in this conversation. Humans are not machines. They're mammals. We're not machines. We may identify with it and say, oh yeah, I, you know, I, I had a heart transplant surgery. So I've taken out a part that was faulty and I've put it in. Just like in my truck, I took out the engine that was bad and I put in a new engine. But that engine that was put into us, that heart, is an organic, biological, living, growing thing. So although it was able to be exchanged through the genius of science in our day and age, it doesn't make us mechanical. It doesn't make us just a sum of parts. We are alive, and the parts that we exchange need to be living. We're not machines. We're mammals. But every day, we, from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep, we're surrounded by cars with all the parts and the functionality. We're surrounded by clocks, time, ticking, precision. We're surrounded by televisions cell phones, we're surrounded by power tools, machines of all sorts, from the smallest to the greatest, and that's influential. It influences the way we speak. Have you ever, I know I have, used the phrase, you know, man, I'm worn out, I just have to recharge my batteries. Well, that's looking at ourselves and our energy level in terms of a mechanical device, a rechargeable battery. Because we're around rechargeable batteries all the time. And so we use and we identify with what we see and it's a way to understand ourselves. Well, you might say that's how God has made us. You know, sleep kind of recharges our batteries. But all of a sudden, we're starting to identify ourselves with the things we see around us and our terminology and our thought patterns slowly, slowly migrate into different ways of thinking about who we are. Or what about when you go to church on Sunday and you walk out like, man, that service was great. The fellowship and the worship and the word and prayer was so good. That totally filled up my tank. I'm ready to go for another week. 
So were you absent of any Holy Spirit before you went into that room or that building? And were you then filled with the Holy Spirit after leaving? Was your tank empty? Can we be empty of God once we've been saved? There's definitely some truth there, right? Like we do become energized by fellowship. There is power in the coming together of God's people, but we're talking about an empty tank and a full tank. We're talking about gas-powered machinery and identifying ourselves with it in that moment, whether we recognize it or not. Or how about if we talk about our schedule going like clockwork? One thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Is life really predictable and precise and efficient? Are our lives clockwork? Or is it life? And you do your best to try to keep things organized, but life happens. Or how about from a memory standpoint, you know? You just feel like you can't absorb any more information. Like, ah, my memory banks are just full. Well, from a computer standpoint, that's absolutely a reality. It just reaches maximum capacity. What's the maximum capacity of a brain to learn, to absorb? And we can certainly be tired, but can our brain capacity ever be full? I don't know what the percentage is, but we even just use the smallest percentage of our brain's capacity at all, never mind the percentage that we use being full. We're not even using our brains to their capacity. But that's looking at ourselves like the technology that surrounds us. And when we feel tired, when we feel like we can't learn another thing, we identify with, well, I must be maxed out. These little phrases, they're nothing that might jump out at us in conversation. And there's definitely an element of truth in all of them. But I'm just trying to paint the picture for us that our thoughts are shaped by our surroundings. And what can happen and what I want us to be careful of and the word of caution I'd like to give in this conversation is that we continually remind ourselves that we are living biology versus functional technology. This affects our relationships. This affects our faith. This affects our hope. This affects our life purpose. This affects our understanding of God. This affects our understanding of our own identity. Like everything is wrapped up in this. So in this technology-driven world, just be cautious and be aware of how we're thinking about ourselves. And in our conversation today, be reminded of who we are and what we're here for and what it means to be alive. You know, the word created by God, you know, you can create a clock or manufacture a clock, but we're born. Created by God, we're given life. We're not merely given existence and function. Genesis says this, right? This is the beginning. Genesis 2, verse 7 says, The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed you know, to work it and to care for it. So this is the Bible's definition of our existence. From the beginning, we are organic. We're made of dust and we're made of breath. We're made of life. We are man and woman created of the earth and given life. 
And from that point of creation, every point of procreation after that has been continuing on and distributing that life to all the successive generations. So from the Bible's perspective, God did not take this part and this part and this part, put them together and made a machine. He didn't make robots. He made creatures. And he gave us purpose, but the purpose is to live and to care. Not like a robot, just to pursue a function or a role. God could have created robots. He could have just put us together and say, this is your function, fulfill your task. But instead he said, you are alive. Live with purpose and with joy in this creation that I've given to you. There's just a fundamental difference in how we look at ourselves based on that. So what we're going to do in just a minute is we're going to look at five specific areas where this can play itself out in our lives, in our relationships, in our faith, because at this point it's still kind of abstract, and I recognize that. You know, does it really matter if we look at ourselves like a tree versus a truck? You know, they both are just different metaphors and one's stronger in one area than another. Maybe, but not really. They're not equal metaphors. And that's the point I want to make. But before we get to those five specific areas of our lives, you know, five scriptures to kind of show us what the Bible's perspective is on that, allow me just one second to lay a foundational theological principle that the Bible teaches. And it's this term, the fullness of time. The fullness of time. There are two places where it's really specifically stated, but this is a concept that's in scripture. The concept is that God does things, specifically Christ, but all things at the right time. When, when time is ripe, that's what the fullness of time means. This fullness of time was a phrase that was used in Greek a language and society to describe a pregnant mother who was ready to give birth. Like her time was full. She had filled up the time of waiting and now was the time of delivery. The fullness of time, you know, the fullness of her pregnancy was ready to give birth at exactly that moment. And so with God's view of the world being outside of time, he knew exactly when Christ should come. When time would have reached its fulfillment, the fullness of time, so that a Savior would be perfect for the world in that moment. This comes from Galatians 4 and then from Mark 1, the two places I said that it was mentioned. Um, Galatians 4, 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So when the creation, when the world, when humanity, when the law and sin and death had reached this perfect Pivot point, God sent Christ and ushered us into a new place. He birthed grace, visible, tangible, fulfilling grace into a world that up to that point had only known law and sin. In the fullness of time, Jesus himself recognized this. He used the same words. In Mark 1, it says, um, verse 14 and 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel, in the good news that God could love us despite our sins. 
That's the gospel. God is good and God is just. And we are sinful and we need his grace. But his grace is sufficient. So Jesus came at exactly the right time. Have you ever thought what it might look like for Jesus to have come far before that? Before time was ripe? What if God gave the promise to Abraham that he would bless the earth through his offspring and one year later, Jesus arrived? So there's no Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's no the people of Israel, the Hebrews at that time, off into Egypt. There's no deliverance from Egypt. There's no Moses. There's no Ten Commandments and Law. There's no fulfillment of the promised land. There's no prophets predicting the downfall of Israel and then the coming Messiah. There's no Jesus just coming at this long-awaited time to fulfill all those prophecies. There's no fulfilled prophecies. None of that happens if Jesus comes too early. A baby born in the first few weeks of conception can't survive. You know, it has to get to a certain point, and medicine and science now, technology, the beautiful part of it, helps babies at an earlier and earlier age to be able to survive. But it has to get to a certain point of development for it to come forth. God saw the development of sin and law and said, you know what? I want them to know me. This world needs to understand my truth. They need the law. They need to see right and wrong. They've deviated from me, from the garden, and they no longer even know what's right or wrong. Here's the law. Now I'm just going to put it out there, God says, and you can look at it and live as you will. Live with it, live against it. But every time you sin, you will see that the law was right. And every time you strive to obey the law, and God grants you the ability to follow it, you will see that it works. The law is just truth. It's universal truth. But God says, I know that you can't live up to the standards of the law, so ultimately it's going to be self-defeating to just know what perfect looks like. You're going to need my help. But you've got to get to the point where you're ready to see it. Humanity, creation, men and women. And that's what happens. That's the story we see. The law just standing out, standing apart, standing above. And just strivings and failings and strivings and failings to the point where it is obvious that there's no such thing as human perfection. And then God says, you've got it? (laughs) Okay. The point is that you are going to need my help to achieve perfection. Because only God is perfect. So when that realization had fully hit and the nation of Israel had struggled and gotten out of Egypt, then maybe this is it. But then struggled in the wilderness, but then got into the promised land, said maybe this is it. And then had a kingdom and said, oh, this is definitely it. And then fell to the nations around them because they wandered from God. Well, that was not it. But then they got their kingdom back to a small extent under the rule of these other empires, the Medes and the Persians and the Romans. Like they're getting bits of it back. So maybe this is it. But then it was not. God's like, you can keep trying. You will not achieve human perfection. So in the fullness of all of that proof, we are going to birth tangibly the living, concrete example of grace. And I will come as a man. I will connect with you. I will do for you the forgiveness piece. 
I will do for you the righteousness peace. I will do for you the eternal life peace. I will do for you the perfection peace because you cannot, it has been well documented and proven that humans can't do it on their own. That's the entire Old Testament. And even with the existence of grace, it's the continuing reality of people that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So God says, okay, good. I've been waiting to tell you this when you were ready to learn it. And as soon as you could comprehend what I was going to say, I was ready to say it. It is the perfect time. The fullness of time. Now I know this is just building a foundational piece for where we're going to go, but, but think about this. God knew exactly when Jesus should come. His time was not arbitrary. It was chosen. Jesus could have come now in our technologically driven society. He could have come even further back before these world empires. But he didn't. And my proposition to you because of that is that the words of Jesus are not merely culturally specific. They are eternally true. When Jesus teaches the people around him that they are like sheep, he is not just saying that merely because there were people who raised sheep in the audience. He was saying it because people are really like sheep. When, when Jesus said to people in his crowd there and his disciples and the Pharisees, he spoke and he said, the kingdom of God is like a seed that's planted and grows. I do not believe that Jesus merely talked about seeds because the people around him were primarily farmers. Jesus was not teaching arbitrary lessons. He was teaching the lessons that God had been waiting for all of human history to teach. And when Jesus speaks in these agricultural terms of us growing and having life, he is not merely just using a handy metaphor. He's describing the way things really are. And I believe if he came today, if he had not come then, if he showed up in the iPhone and the computer and the car and the airplane in this age, he would still be telling parables about growing things, about living things, about biological things, about creatureliness. Because that's who we are. And it was the perfect moment in history for him to speak those truths because they all really understood it. We are getting further and further from the truth of who we are and we need to be reminded of it. So I challenge you, as we read things that Jesus says today and as you read his words, do not put him in a historical category because he is not outdated because he didn't come at an arbitrary time. He came at exactly the right time to say exactly the right things, to teach exactly the right truths that would be relevant for all time because he is a God apart from time that entered in at the fullness of time to tell us how it really is. And when Jesus says that you are a plant, that is not just a convenient metaphor, that is true. And when Jesus says your faith is a seed, 
that is not just an interesting illusion or allegory. It's really who you are. And it's really what faith is like. Don't put Jesus in his parables. Don't put scripture into this antiquated category and now start thinking of ourselves as if we're something other than living, breathing creatures made in the image of God whose purpose is to live, not just to function. So let's lay out our five examples. The first one, the first way that living in a technological society can kind of creep into our thinking and influence how we see ourselves, how we go about handling life, all this kind of stuff. It's an insidious thing. It's a small thing. But watch out for this because it can happen to me and it can happen to you. We can begin to see things as either working or broken, which leaves out the option of growing. If we live in a world where when things are either working or they're broken, our cell phone is either working or broken, our TV, our car, it's either working or broken. If my car gets a flat tire, I'm not waiting for it to grow another one. If my cell phone screen cracks and the thing smashes on the pavement as I step out of my car, I'm not just going to sit back and wait and be like, oh, I wonder what will happen. I know exactly what happened. It's technology and machinery that is now broken. It's either on or it's off. It's working or broken. We live in a world where most things are either working or broken. That is true about a cell phone and it is true about a car. It is not true about you. And it is not true about me. Think about how this sort of mindset could impact us as we think about our children. Or if you don't have children, about the children around you. Your nieces, nephews, children at church. Are they either working or broken? The good kids or the bad kids? Do we put them into categories? When a child has this certain behavior, it's like, well, that's, that's a bad kid. That's a fresh kid. That's a rebellious kid. Because they're either working or broken. So obviously that kid is broken. How is that going to impact our treatment of that child? How are we going to stereotype that child just by thinking that way about him? What's, who is he? He's bad. It's a bad kid. But what if we said right now where that child is, he's in a rebellious stage. Immediately, we have left open the potential for that child to become the greatest person who ever lived. The most honest and trustworthy and diligent and faithful person who ever lived. It's just a challenge to figure out how to help that child grow in that direction. Children aren't broken or fixed. They're growing. And the kids, we say, oh, that's a good kid. You don't need to worry about them. Well, yes, you do. In all the same ways, you need to worry about every kid. Because good kids can make all the same stupid mistakes as bad kids because there's no real category of working or broken. There's just kids. And we all face the same temptations and we all make some of the same mistakes. But if we're growing, then we don't just wash our hands of someone when they've done that. We look to see how we can help that person grow into something better. You know, some mistakes are life-altering and irreparable. 
in their consequence, but that doesn't mean that the person who committed them is going to continue to commit them. What if someone commits a terrible, terrible crime and is so devastated by it that their life turns around and they become a champion for the causes that help deal with that crime in others? They become a leading world figure in fighting against and helping others avoid falling into the same problem. That's growth. The mistake doesn't mean it's always going to be repeated. What if the mistake could be learned from? My cell phone is not going to learn from falling out of my lap into the pavement and breaking. It is not going to improve in the future. It is just broken. But that's not how people work. And even when we get wounds and scars, you know, battle wounds from life along the way, that doesn't mean that we are broken. It just means we've got some nicks and some scratches. We've got some scars. But our current and our past does not determine our future. It's just going to shape it a little bit. It might steer it a little bit. It, it will influence it and impact it for sure, but it does not determine it. We are not fatalistic. We believe in a God that transforms. And there's always hope. So be careful about thinking about yourself as broken, thinking about your children as broken, or thinking about yourself as fixed. I'm fixed. Oh, really? So that means that you'll never break again? You'll never break down again? You'll never stumble again? You'll never sin again? Oh, I thought you were fixed. Why are you sinning? I thought you were a Christian, so you're just perfect now, right? Oh, well, you're not a Christian, so everything you do must be wrong. You must be a completely evil person because you don't believe in God. Everything you do must be wicked all the time. These categories are not accurate to living creatures. Those are mechanical terms, entirely unhelpful in how we see ourselves and see others. Think about marriages. My marriage is broken. Ah, maybe your marriage is breaking? Maybe your marriage is wounded? Maybe your marriage is struggling? But it's still alive. And as long as it's alive, it's alive. And as long as we're alive, we're still alive. We're not dead. Maybe dead is the final broken, the final end. But any time up to that moment, we are alive. And there is potential for life to grow. The passage from the Bible that speaks to this is Paul, in his words, you know, Paul that was giving his consent to murdering of Christians, the Paul who was arresting Christians, you know, he was someone who you'd say, that's a bad guy. But he wasn't broken beyond God's repair. It's just where he came from and where he was, God needed to grab him and say, you're not staying here, Paul. I've got something else for you. And it took people like Barnabas and others to have a real leap of faith to say, okay, I know who you were. I would have said, you're broken, Paul, then known as Saul. But God said, nope. He's just got some growing to do. I'm going to wake him up. And God woke him up. So this Paul, the one who encountered God and Jesus in a light and you know, fell off on the road, blinded and had Jesus restore his sight and then went on to write most of our New Testament. If anyone is fixed, we think it's Paul. If anyone has got it right, if anyone's a good person, you know, okay, fine, he was bad, now, now he's good, he went from broken to fixed, okay, broken to working. He did not see himself that way. 
Man, if Paul didn't see himself that way, let's not live to that concept for ourselves. This is how he views himself. Philippians 3, 12 to 15. He says, Not that I have already obtained everything or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in any way you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. He's like, for all of you that have lived for a while, you know that there's a lot more to life than you thought. Anyone who's mature recognizes we have not gotten all the way there. I think it's the naivete of youth to feel like, oh yeah, if I just do this, I'll have arrived. I'll get there and I'll do that and I'll be done or I'll achieve. And then you get there and you realize, oh, there's more. Oh, there's more. Oh, there's more. And Paul said, I've seen all this, but I'm not all the way there. He says, I'm a work in progress. I am growing. Paul was growing. He was not broken when he was broken and he was not working when he was working. He was apart from God, and then Christ said, I am going to make you my own, Paul. Now grow this way instead. And so he did. He grew towards the light. just like the plant growing towards the sun. And he just kept growing, pressing on, pressing on for that upward call to God through Jesus. If Paul didn't see himself in this way, we need to recognize nobody should see themselves as broken or working, broken or fixed. We're growing. We are either dead apart from God or growing in him. Not mechanical, biological. So that was our first example. Just things to be careful of, things not to let them influence our belief structure simply because we operate in a world where we see this sort of stuff around us. Let us not become like that. People are not broken or working. People grow. The second one builds right on that. So it's very similar, but it takes it to another sort of facet of this broken. In technology, there is such a thing as broken beyond repair. Right? Broken beyond repair. So if your truck breaks down, that's not beyond repair most of the time. You just replace the parts and you move on. But there are times where things are broken beyond repair. It's an accident, perhaps, and the frame is so badly mangled, the engine and all the computer system is so badly destroyed, there's actually nothing left that's redeemable. You know, a watch is left on the ground and someone steps on it. And all the gears are smashed, all the crystal, all the glass, the band, everything is broken. It's broken beyond repair. This is a true thing that can happen to machines. Not merely just like not working, but like that thing is trashed. That, they're, throw it out and get another one. I would contend that with humans... As long as we are still alive, there is no such thing as broken beyond repair. Now, we're not really saying something's broken has got to get fixed. We're saying there is no such thing as broken beyond repair for humans. Let 
What are the implications of this line of thinking for the person that struggles with addiction and substance abuse? What are the implications of them feeling that it is possible to be broken beyond repair? What are the implications of them thinking that there's no such thing as broken beyond repair? And where there's damaged or crippled or wounded or stifled or injured or corrupted, there is also healing, pruning, hoping, growing, and thriving. Where would the hope be for someone who is caught in addiction if there is such a thing as broken beyond repair? And where would that spark of life just keep fluttering if they could say, there's no such thing as broken beyond repair? Do you have any friends or family members that struggle with addiction, addiction of any sort, gambling addiction, sexual addictions, substance addictions, anything. They are not broken beyond repair. They may be broken. They may be wounded. They may be crippled in some way, hampered, hindered, tied down, but they are not broken beyond repair. Always pray for them. Always love them. Now your love may be helping love, your, your love may be abstaining from help to, to not enable them to continue to sin, to do damage to themselves. Love can look different, but always love them and always pray for them and always hold out hope. As long as they are alive and as long as you are alive, there is no such thing as broken beyond repair, which means there's always the hope for a miracle, for God to take what once was lost and make it found. What once was blind to now be able to see, once was dead to resurrect it. It's what God does. Luke 137, simple little verse. Do you remember it? It says, nothing is impossible with God. From the Bible's perspective, nothing is impossible for God. So if nothing is impossible, not raising someone from the dead, not crossing a Red Sea, not coming to earth as a man, not any miracle that was done in Scripture or in our day, if nothing is impossible with God, then there is no such thing as broken beyond repair. Period. All right, let's move to our third example of how this mentality can influence how we live our lives, how we see ourselves. Um, with technology, newer is better, for the most part. We might pine for the old days when things were built better, you know, or were more reliable. You know, my dishwasher that lasted for 50 years, I just bought a new one and it died after a year and a half. Yeah, there might be manufacturing things that were different. But in a technology-driven society, newer is better. You know, the car that can get 50 miles to the gallon is better than the, the clunker that we're driving that gets 7 miles to the gallon. You know, the computer that is created now is so far superior to the one that was made 4 years ago or 5 years ago that it's just light years ahead. With technology, newer is better for the most part. 
We always upgrade to the new phone, to the new computer. We upgrade and upgrade and upgrade. And subtly we're being taught that in all areas of life, the newer thing is better. How does this apply to marriages that don't feel that romantic anymore? It's kind of lost its spark. And then someone catches your eye at work and gives you a big smile. And there's that spark. Or you go out for drinks or a meal or to the movies and you get into a great conversation with someone and you feel a spark. Newer is better, right? I want to specifically ask you to think for a second, how does this mindset rob the older, wiser people in our world of their dignity and value? If newer is better, then older is obsolete. What does that mean for senior citizens today? If we believe that the newer is better and smarter and more capable, what does that mean for adults, for parents, for grandparents? What's their value if they're the older model? And don't we see it playing itself out? This is like a slippery slope. I see this in our country. I see this. We do not value wisdom. We do not value age. We do not value those silver hairs that you've earned over time through difficult and also joyful experiences. We do not look at someone who's in their 50s, 60s, or 70s and say, wow, they must have done something right because they lived to that point. They earned that. I wonder what they know. I wonder what they've learned. Look at that resource of wisdom and experience. We do not look at anyone over probably 30 or 25 with that sort of a view. We just say, ah, they lived in the last generation. And we make these generational boundaries with, you know, Gen X and Gen Z and baby boomers. And we, you know, out with the old, in with the new. Why do our parents... Why do adults, why does anyone older than, say, midlife and on start to lose value in our eyes instead of gain it? The Bible has a much different perspective on that. In Proverbs 16.31, it says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It's gained in a righteous life. Gray hair, a crown of glory. You lived long enough and have seen enough and have survived. You're a survivor. You're a fighter. And what have your eyes seen as you've been earning all those gray hairs? What do you have to teach? So it becomes a twofold problem if this perception sneaks in. The younger do not go to the older to ask for advice, so they just make the same stupid mistakes that every other generation has. And the older recognizes that there's some sort of pushback there, so they don't initiate and they step away and feel useless despite the fact that they're the ones that have accumulated that knowledge. So there's no initiative coming from the older generations. And there's no respect coming forth from the younger generations. There's just generational gaps and walls and boundaries. This is a technology-driven concept Back in the days of Proverbs being written, where Solomon is seeing his kingdom, he recognizes 
the wisdom of many counselors. He recognizes a life lived well and lived long has a lot to offer. He's the wisest man who ever lived, and he recognizes that. We're probably the stupidest people that have ever lived because we can't recognize that. The newest fad, the newest youngest preacher, the newest youngest artist or musician, the newest youngest everything, the next generation of technology, the, everything is like newer is better, and it's robbing us of things like wisdom, it's robbing us of things like experience, it's robbing, things, robbing us of things like respect, and it's dividing our society. As Christians, let's fight against that. Let's honor and respect and seek out and draw from these deep, deep wells of the people who have gone before us, whether they've gone five years more in life than us or 55 years in life further than we have. Draw from those wells. Ask questions. Do not dismiss. Do not put away. Do not roll our eyes. Learn from And will we do everything the way they did? No, but you can learn what they have learned and find out what those principles mean for you in your life and in your world. That's true wisdom. Not being so arrogant to think that we know it all. Because people are people are people. So the same challenges they faced, even though it was a different culture, will be many of the same exact challenges we'll face. Learn from wisdom. Let's fight for this. Let's champion wisdom. Let's champion old age. Instead of being the ones that are trying to look like we're 20 when we're 60 and getting all of our body treatments to make us look like we did 30 years before, what if we just own those gray hairs and those smile lines and those wrinkles and recognize the life that we've lived, earning those? That has value. And in a technology-driven society, there's the danger that it can lose its value. A couple more, real quickly, and then we'll, we'll pull it together with one final section on, um, on our souls, specifically in light of this conversation. What if we begin to look at people who are saved and unsaved as being has a, having an identity of saved or unsaved instead of lost or found. And I used that phrase a couple minutes ago. Specifically think about the unsaved people around us. We use that word unsaved. Uh, how about if we just say not yet saved? Or people still that we're praying will be saved by God? Unsaved is this category. It's categorical. They're in that category. They're boxed in. It's their label. It's their identity. The Bible talks about you know, a shepherd having 100 sheep, and if 99 of them are safe and one of them wanders off, doesn't he go after that one? He cares about the whole flock. So the people that are quote-unquote unsaved are actually lost. It's not about their identity. It's about their location. They have wandered. They are you know, refusing to look up, even though God's calling them to look upward. They are turning their own way versus going God's way. But someone who's lost can be found. Someone who wanders can be returned. Someone who's unsaved is like, well, I hope that their identity changes. And there is a soul shift, you know, a leaving of the world and an entering into Christ's kingdom. So 
there's some element of truth, but let us not think of each other in terms of saved or unsaved as defining identities. Let us think about ourselves and others as lost or found, because that makes us all the same sorts of people, all sheep, all with the same God who loves us all equally, and it makes us who have been found recognize that it's not so much a badge of honor as it is something to be grateful for. Thank you, God, for finding me and helping me find you. Now help this person over here find you because they're still wandering. And I don't want them to wander because I was wandering. I know what that's like. That's like hopeless and aimless and futile. Bring them into the fold, Father. Go get them. Can I, can I help you? Can I go that way? Can I walk towards them and maybe bring them along with me? Lost and found are living terms. They're locations of living people, saved and unsaved categories. Let us be careful not to identify someone by their brand, by their model, or by their make. Someone's either a Ford or someone's a Toyota. Someone's either a Chevy or a Mercedes. No, 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 no. We're all sheep. And by God's grace, some of us have been gathered into the fold. God helped us put down our rebellious heart and we, we came in like sheep into his pen. So go get more sheep. Go help the sheep that are still out there lost in the wilderness. Pray to the wolves that are prowling around. Get them safe too. Then they'll be safe in terms of their location within the pen versus saved in terms of their doctrinal accuracy. Go help someone who's lost. Get found. Don't label them as an unbeliever. Book of James uses exact phrasing. It says in James 5, 19 and 20, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Help the sinners who are wandering wander back. They wandered one way, they can wander back the other. And imagine all the sins that can be covered up and atoned for, all the sin that can be prevented if we just help and welcome others back instead of wandering further and further. Our fifth example. I mentioned this right from the start, so we'll tie it up with this here. If we live in a world where the things around us are made and made for a specific function, we could believe that our value and our inherent worth is based upon our functionality. A toaster is only as good as the toast it makes. A car or truck is only as good as its ability to either transport people or products from A to B safely, economically, effectively. A cell phone is only good if it functions. And when we've got no bars or when it's broken or its memory is full, it is not being a cell phone to us. It is not fulfilling its function. It's either broken or useless, needs to be repaired, needs to be upgraded, something. People were created with purpose, but we were not created to have our identity based in simply 
function. We were created because God said, let me make man in my image. Our mere existence is a proof of a God and a reflection of what he's like. Just by us living, we are glorifying a God who could make such a thing as a person. Invented and created and designed and give it life. And if we're good with our hands or good at sports or good at school or intellectual or simple, none of that changes the fact that our existence is a glorification of a creator, an example, an image of a creator God. And yet we define ourselves and our value by our function all the time. Are you good enough at your job? How do you know? Performance reviews. Succeeding at that project. Getting that presentation. Getting that new client. Building that house. Teaching that class. We did a good job. I'm a good teacher. I'm a good builder. I'm a good designer, a good architect, a good banker. Because I do good work. Functional. Now, you are a person, and your identity is in the fact that you reflect a creator, father, God. And he's made you in such a way that you can do certain things. And as you do them, like use them as outworkings of this proof that he made you for purpose. We're not made to just sit. We're made to go and do. But the going and doing are secondary to the being. Our identity is not in how much we can accomplish. And for all of us type A people who are objective and goal-oriented, task-oriented, you know, good Americans working hard, being productive, multitasking, your value is not in how productive you can be. Not in God's eyes, but it certainly is in the world's eyes. And of all the technology that we're surrounded with, all of it has its value in its functionality. Either you are good at what you do or you are not worth keeping in this company. What have you done for me lately? You used to be good at this job? Fine, you're not now, you're out. Work operates so much in this current functional effectiveness being how we measure ourselves against one another and therefore how we measure who gets the better paychecks and therefore how we measure who lives in the better communities, and therefore how we measure who's more successful based upon their functionality. You know, if you're raising kids, they do not need you to be functional. They need you to be relational. And in their face, smiling eye to eye, spending time, that is success. It is not, well, I got them to this club, and we did this, and, you know, they got to be part of this, and I brought home a paycheck, so I gave them money, and they got to do everything they wanted to do. No, you are a parent. You need to bond yourself together with this growing human so that they can know you and therefore look at themselves and know themselves as a result. And as they see themselves in you and as they learn from you, for better or for worse, they grow into the people that God wants them to become. It is not because you taught them how to mow a good lawn. Although that's a great skill. It is not simply because you gave them life skills like being able to balance their checkbook. 
it is because you existed in their lives and showed them love. Parenting is not a functional role, it is a relational role, and it is a heart-to-heart, face-to-face agreement between yourself and the small human that has been entrusted to your care for a short time. Our self-worth is at stake if we're based on our functionality because you can do something great last week, but then when you fail today, oh, I might lose my job. You might have been amazing in the past, but the past of the past doesn't count anymore in this functional world. And so therefore today you have no self-esteem and no confidence because your confidence is built upon your functionality and your effectiveness today. That's not how identity is. I will always have been born from my mother and father for my entire life. My identity is just a, a byproduct of their marriage and their gene pool and God's will. And it doesn't matter if I fail yesterday or today. We are all children of God and our identity is in the fact that we are born from Him and our souls are reborn by Christ in His image and that is not a functional thing. That is a faith thing and it is a relationship. And in this world where we get surrounded by so much functionality, just recognize that's not how you are made. That is not where your value lies. And if you get better at this than the next person, you're still just both people. If Christ has found you but someone else is still lost, you're both still sheep. And the value is the identity of being a sheep and knowing that you've got a shepherd. The value is in knowing that I am a son and I've got a mom and dad who love me. And when they fail, they're still my mom and dad. And when I fail they're still my mom and dad. And when I do great, they're my mom and dad. And when they do great, they're my mom and dad. It's not based upon function. It's based upon identity. This is so easy to lose sight of in our world. And I challenge us as believers to hang on to our identity in Christ, which is not dependent upon our success or failure, but dependent upon the fact that there's a God who loves our souls and is willing to go all out to get us back from wandering, to rescue us. And our continued salvation will not be based upon our success or failures. It will always continue to be based upon the fact that our identity is now redeemed. Children of God. So I said we would wrap it up at the end with a, a, a word towards our soul. Many of these things that we've talked about so far have been um, body things, you know, like how we live out our lives, how we relate to others, sort of the physical outworkings. But can we look inward for just a moment and have our last kind of thought be about what our souls are like? The Bible is very clear. When it comes to our souls and our faith, we are absolutely more like trees than we are like trucks. Jesus talks about planting the seed of the gospel. Do you remember that from Matthew 13? You know, the seed of the gospel is planted and some people have hard hearts and they're like, no thank you. Other people have soft hearts, but it's shallow. It's like curiosity. Yeah, faith. Yeah, nah, no thanks. 
Others are just busy and never amount to producing anything for God's kingdom. You know, there's something growing in them, but it's just clogged up. And then there are others that just bear fruit, and they bear different kinds of fruit and different numbers of fruit, but they're fruitful. But it's just seeds and growing. Jesus used that term not just because the people around him were farmers, but because that's how the gospel works. Do you know this phrase from the book of James uh, where it says, um, receive, James 1.21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. When you hear the word of the gospel, you hear that God loves you, you hear that Jesus died for your sins, and you receive that implanted word, Seed terminology, again, we're the soil, God's word and love is the seed. Receive it with meekness because it's able to save your souls. Like you've been given this seed that's going to grow and create life where there was no life. There was just soil. So receive it. Open up your heart to receive that seed. Our souls are absolutely living things and it is absolutely possible to have a dead soul in a living body. And that will result in eternal death and punishment. But it's absolutely also possible to have a living soul that has come to life in a living body. And just as we were born from our mother and father in that DNA pool, we need to be given God's DNA. We need to receive with meekness, with submission, just like, yes, God, I accept, I believe, I am willing, I submit. Forgive me, save me. We need that acceptance, and then that seed will bring our soil to life. And that's what Jesus talked about. He said, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is in John chapter 3. He says, how can you be born again? And Jesus said, don't you understand? Just as people are born once from parents, they need to be born at a soul level if you want to have a soul that's alive. There has to be an encounter with God where you say yes, and you receive that seed. Whether it's from looking at creation or looking at the human body and by creation, recognizing, wow, there is a God. Okay, there's the seed. It's been planted. There must be a God out there. What do you do with that seed? Do you accept it? Do you harden yourself off to it? Do you receive it? Do you let it bear fruit? Do you, do you nurture it and fertilize it and you know, tend to it so that it thrives? Do you weed the garden so that it can bear fruit? It's still just a seed and your soul is a living thing within us. Our spirit needs to come alive through rebirth, through Jesus saying, now you're carrying my DNA. And that is an identity thing not based upon your worth. You are not saved by your works. You are saved by my graciousness. So welcome to the family. You can't lose it now that you've got it. No more than you can lose having been born from your mother or father. It is what it is, and now that's your identity. Now live. Live like it. Live like God has saved and brought to life your soul. What's the conclusion? What's the point? We were made to live. The whole fundamental difference between biology and technology is that one of those two things is alive. It's alive. We were meant to live. The Bible says that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are living words. Doesn't say being part of the kingdom is a matter of function and task, repetition and obligation. No. We were made to live. From the very first person ever to live to the very last person to ever to live, 
we were made to be alive, which means we were made to be born, we were made to grow, we were made to thrive, we were made to bear fruit. Live like it. Live like you are a growing thing, and wherever you are is not where you're going to end up because you're growing, for better or for worse. Live like you're not just valuable because of what you can accomplish. Live like you're valuable because you look like God and He loves you no matter what. I challenge us all to be alive and to live like we're alive and to grow like we're alive and to thrive like we're alive.